Yes, so looking at Ram, this is probably the... These are the cards that when you see them in a casual game of Commander, you're like, oh, this is a CDH deck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that may be your introduction to a lot of them, even though uh, you may notice about half of this section or more of it, these are cards that get played pretty frequently in casual Commander. Yeah, specifically, you're always gonna you're gonna see some form of like talisman or signet like card. Uh, Felwar Stone falls in that, and then you have like Soul Ring and Arcane Signet, which I see a ton of in casual. I mean, they're in every structure deck. So, mm. yeah, some more CDH specific ones. Um, Mana Crypt is kind of CDH's Soul Ring. Zero mana to tap for two, absolutely busted. Um, this card is usually with like it. Usually, if there's a really broken turn one. So Mana Crypt was involved somewhere. Being able to just play like, you know, Volcanic Island, Mana Crypt, Ristic Study. The the plays that this card enables are just so absurd. Um, not having to spend mana to get mana is just a key part of sort of these five cards that you'll see mostly in CDH. Chrome Mox, Mox Amber, Mox Diamond. Um, Chrome Mox and Mox Diamond a little bit more limited, but in giving you colored mana. Um, Hard to argue with that. Mox Opal is a, a little bit more specific to um, artifact heavy decks. Uh, if if you're not either really heavy on Dockside or just your own artifacts in the list, it can be hard to turn on. But just some of the most powerful cards in Magic, some of the most banned and restricted cards a- across all formats, just mana, paying zero mana to get one mana or paying zero to get two or one to get two, just being able to play these mana positive cards uh, really impacts the way that this format looks. Yeah. And when touch up on cards, like specifically, we'll, I'll dive into the two green ones, uh, Utopia Sprawl and Wall Growth. Um, they're just another form of mana dorks that aren't susceptible to like creature removal. Um, there's some cool tricks that you can do with cards like Utopia Sprawl and Wall Growth with something like an Arbor Elf where you can basically untap a forest and just kind of double down on that effect and get that mana in. But they're just kind of like greens. Um, they're just like, they're weird. I don't know how to describe them. They're like, a, they're not a spring leaf drum. They're not, they're kind of like a dork. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. They're like, if soul ring was one green and produced one mana, that's, that's like the best yeah. way to describe them. These, so. these cards can really be, kind of skill testing in a in a way that's a, a little hard to see at first because like the card the, the land you play them on ends up can be a really big deal if you're in a deck with more than just green in your color identity um and yeah being able to like once you get two lands up being able to tap one land to put this on the other land they're kind of like immediate acceleration where you're at least able to like they're just free they're free ramp that you get access to next turn where you're positive immediately Go even first, positive next. Uh, the next green one that you might not be familiar with is Carpet of Flowers. Um, we've talked about how blue is just the color of this format. Carpet of Flowers looks to take advantage of that by ramping yourself based on your opponent's islands. Um, the more high color the format starts to get, the less Carpet of Flowers is crazy. But if an opponent has two islands, this card is just a better soul ring like 90% of the time. It's just being able to make, make colored mana, uh, getting to do it, uh, just spend the mana, go to the next main phase, make two colored mana. 
to cast your commander or whatever nonsense you want to play. Just a really good card um, that it is uh, pod specific to how good it's going to be in, uh, in each game. But blue is just so common. Carpet of Flowers is going to at least pay for itself and then start paying off in the later turns. Yeah, I think a card like Carpet of Flowers is worth the risk. I uh, initially had it cut from a list, but in the games where like where Carpet of Flowers was so impactful, it was really impactful. It wasn't mm-hmm. like uh, if this was like another rock or something like that. Being able to fight through cards like Collector Oof or a Null Rod effect, being able to still generate that mana is really, really nice. That allows you to especially if they keep messing with your commander, allows you to keep like essentially powering out your commander if need be. Um, it's a great card and pretty flexible too. Like you said, you can cast it and then go to your second main phase and get its effect. So you can really choose when you want to utilize it. Okay. Um, now, in a lot of the same vein, we have uh, effects that I would consider rituals. So some of these are mana rocks, but a lot of them are one-time use or require another investment to get them back access to it. A lot of what you might think of as a ritual is something like a card like Dark Ritual. You spend a black, you get three black, you just go, you trade a card for mana. But um, what that looks like in CDH actually has a decent bit of flexibility. You have cards like the Spirit Guides that you don't even have to cast a spell. You exile them, you get a mana for free. Um, the rocks like Mana Vault and Grim Monolith that go mana positive but stay tapped. And then new additions like Jeweled Lotus, which are just absolutely crazy and help power out some of the best early turns that you can have in this format. Yeah, so looking at it, there's 15 cards in this list. All 15 cards are in my Corval deck. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I take that back. 14, because I cut Jessica's will uh, mm-hmm. currently right now just uh, based on... but. 15 of these cards have been in my deck, give or take at any point in time. Um, really great. Um, Jewel Lotus is pretty, it's, you know, you can read the card and understand why it's so good. Um, cards that I want to specifically touch on are like Lion's Eye Diamond. Lion's Eye Diamond is an interesting card because uh, we mentioned earlier combos with like a Breach, Savine, Sacramation, and then like you'll be able to like have access to a card like Brain Freeze. Uh. But I've seen a lot of games where Lion's Eye Diamond allows you to set up with your commander, especially like a Krom or any like commander that generates a lot of card advantage where you play out your hand, you play an, you play the LED, you crack it, get your mana and cast your commander. So I think that aspect gets kind of forgetting about that card because your commander now generates card advantage. So you're, if you're telling me I get to go like, uh, a couple of rocks on turns like one and two, uh, along with something like maybe like an Esper Sentinel or Mystic Remora. And let's say I'm kind of out of cards at that point, but I could crack an LED and then play a t- play a, a, a Crom. Or if I had like a card in my hand that's just irrelevant to that point of the game, I would rather have the Crom in play than probably just like some other random piece of like cardboard in my hand. Mm. So LED can be used in that fashion, uh, respectively. And I think it just kind of gets forgetting like that. And it's a part of like a lot of combo lines. It's pretty interesting card. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's a card that um, you'll see mostly a staple index that can combo with it. Um, I will go ahead and say, so if you're not familiar with this card, it's a little bit tricky, uh, when you are first looking at it, 
Um, you're not able to just cast cards from your hand with Lion's Eye Diamond the way it works. You have to discard first. You can't use it as a mana ability uh, at, at that speed, at least, as a mana source. So you can't put something on the stack, use LED to pay for it. If it's in your hand, it's going to get discarded. But there are a lot of things like your commander, for instance, which aren't in play or aren't in your hand and you can cast with LED. Or like we mentioned, being able to use Underworld Breach. Once you get a Lion's Eye Diamond with Underworld Breach, the world is kind of your oyster. You get to keep casting LED by escaping it. Um, it's a really tricky card. Sometimes it is a Jeweled Lotus. Um, sometimes the downside is upside. Like we said, Underworld Breach gets empowered. Being able to dump cards into your graveyard, sometimes not a bad thing. And it's also a really skill testing card, like we've mentioned. Uh, you can do things like cast an LED, Tap your lands to cast your Wheel of Fortune, crack LED, holding priority, get some mana, and then draw your seven cards from wheel, get to use the mana immediately. Uh, it's a card that has a lot of play to it and um, really powerful in all the formats that it's legal in. Just a great card. Yeah. Uh, two cards that I'd like to mention are the Spirit Guides. We have Elvish Spirit Guide and Simeon Spirit Guide. <sighs> I mean, I don't know how else to say that they're essentially, with with outside the exception of the hits off of Ad Nauseam, they're mm -hmm. zero mana, make a mana. Just yeah. absolutely fantastic cards, especially, again, what the format's trying to do. Even, like, non-turbo decks still utilize these cards to help power out their play. It, even if you're trying to cast a turn one collector oof, just being able to use either one of these plus a green source to respectively cast that card or your commander or whatever that is. It's just such a, they're just so good. Uh, they're so good. They need to make a black one though. Seriously. <laughs> like, what would you call it? <laughs> yeah. I've seen a lot of people want zombie spirit guide and merfolk spirit guide. Yeah, um, zombie. No. Yeah. Zombie spirit guide. Like you could even make it like Negula life. I don't even care at this point. Just, just go ahead and make that card exist. Or I would prefer our next card, which is Tenderwall. So Tenderwall is really interesting. It's in the same vein. It's essentially a one mana uh, plus one ritual because it's going to give you two red. Um, it's a creature that has the ability to sacrifice and add two red for a green. It's a it's it's essentially kind of like a green Rite of Flame in a way. Like it makes red though. But it also just happens to be uh, an 0-3 blocker which is pretty interesting, and it can kill a Tenda. You can pay a red to sacrifice it and have it deal two damage to target creature at blocks. So you watch out, Tenda players. Don't attack into a Tender Wall. It's a bad idea. Yes. Uh, we also have, I think, the most commonly played card here, uh, Lotus Petal. Any deck can run it. It's zero mana, add a mana. Um, it's just a treasure as a card, but it turns out that's broken enough to make it worth playing. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got the more typical, um, or some more uh, specific, rather, um, rituals like Culling the Weak, which require you to sack a creature, but you get four mana, and Reign of Filth. Um, I think we can uh, talk about the Goblin in the room, though, with Dockside Extortionist. Um, Is that card good? Does that card see play? Yes, so if you're not familiar with CDH meta, maybe you've seen this in casual, this is, I would argue the most format defining card in cdh right now um like we've mentioned a lot of these most broken cards that we've talked about turns out that they're if your opponent is playing them which they will be dockside extortionists start to make a lot of treasures 
And so this really rewards you for your opponents playing the game. And like we mentioned with cards like Ristic Study and Esper Sentinel, that type of effect is really impactful. It's one of the best things you can do in this format. And Dockside being on a creature ETB means it's really easy to cast it, reloop it, tutor it up, put it into play, get the triggers immediately. It's not uncommon for Dockside to be making on turns one and two up to five treasures. Um, and just as the game goes on, your opponent's building a good board state means that they're feeding Dockside. And so the game really can become who's getting the most Dockside triggers, who gets the first Dockside, who gets the second Dockside, do you crack your treasures in response? It is a really impactful card that is absolutely defining a lot of the plays that you see right now. Yeah, and what's unique about Dockside, obviously it's it's hyper-efficient mana cost is its creature type. So we have Goblin Pirate. I would say the Pirate is probably the most important effect as a broad spectrum just because it works with cards like Malcolm that allows you to make treasures whenever a Pirate deals damage a period, not necessarily damage to a player, but having it be a Pirate's really good. And then obviously being a Goblin allows it to be tutorable in low-color decks with like Recruiter effects like Goblin Recruiter, Goblin Matron, and then it's sacrificing the Skirt Prospector is the most appealing part of that because Skirt's Prospector allows you to sacrifice any Goblin to get a red to your mana pool. And being able to sacrifice the Dockside, which also protects it from removal spells, uh, especially Exile effects. And then you can just, especially in like the Rakdos-style Turbo decks, they just allow it to reanimate it. Even Five Color Kinrith runs Skirt Prospector, Dockside Loops, essentially to generate infinite mana and do whatever they want with their Kenrith at that point. Yeah, there are a lot of decks that are built around using and abusing Dockside. Um, decks like, like you mentioned, a lot of the Kenrith decks are using it. A lot of Thrasios decks look to uh, get Dockside and a meal into play and make infinite yeah. mana. Uh, Sisse does that. Um, Omnath uh, looks to do that. It's just like, Dockside is one of the most abused and abusable cards in the format. Um, if it, and it's kind of cards like that, uh, along with some of these other broken cards like Deflecting Squad, Underworld Breach, which we haven't even got to cover yet, really, uh, are why Red has kind of taken over the format in the in the past few years. It's just kind of the best stuff you can do. Yeah, it really sped up the format in such a way because the the speed was kind of there. These cards really just kind of pushed it to an 11. Mm. So because like Simeon Spirit Guide and Rite of Flame, they were always there. But now having other cards like Dockside Exorcius and Jessica's Will, especially in the decks that have commanders that are make this card fairly easy to cast, like uh, like Rograk. Just really take advantage of a card like Jessica's Will. Jessica's Will being able to generate a tremendous amount of red mana. It's essentially like a three par- or two parts, uh, like M- three draw three impulse effect, or like a super saving song. Being able to act have access to like low costing like commanders like Rograk really help push cards like Jessica's Will, like just that that upper threshold of speed. It may almost sound sort of negative when we're talking about the speed, and especially if you're if you're coming from uh, casual, you may sound like, oh, well, that's just going to lead to turn one and two wins. It really, the the wins, if you look at a, a resource like CDH.guide, the average wins in CDH are closer to turn four and five. But what's happening now is people are doing a lot on your turns. When you have a card like Dockside in the format, along with these rituals, you get to just 
do a whole lot of magic uh, in a really short amount of time. If you got one in a red, being able to turn that into casting your commander even. Um, you don't have to just abuse Dockside. Sometimes it's just two mana, make three treasures. Uh, maybe you needed to cast something you didn't have blew up. You get to cast your Ristic setting. It's just crazy flexible. Um, can win in the late game. Can just get you going in the early game. Absolutely crazy card uh, along with a lot of these rituals. Now we get to talk about everybody's favorite card and card type and archetype. This is Stacks. Um, so if you're not familiar, um, Stacks pieces, these are cards that typically um, shut down some uh, type of play pattern. So for instance, cards like Rule of Law keep you from being able to cast more than one spell each turn. That's applied to the whole table. So even if you play it, you only get to cast one spell per turn. Um, typically these decks are built in a way to where they can play these sort of pieces that shut down some type of play style and then they're able to play in a way that gets around that where they're able to break it or you might hear the term uh, break parity meaning they're able to get the advantage on these symmetrical effects yeah so like like you mentioned there's the rule of law effects and that's going to be applied to rule of law eidolon or rhetoric and archon of Emeria. Um, but then you got a card like Deafening Silence, which is each player can't cast more than one non-creature spell each turn. So you might see Deafening Silence in all your traditional stacks decks, but especially ones that run at, uh, creatures, you're able to just still leverage that. So you get to essentially continue to develop resources, and I want to say like turbo out, but you get to like really exploit like the green dorks we talked about earlier or anything like that, or a creature-based strategy, or even a creature combo that wins through something, like a Dockside Team or Sabretooth uh, combo. And the Deafening Silence not only protects, it really kind of protects you, and it limits your opponents. So it's it's a card like that that's really powerful. And it being one mana is, is pretty wild. Yeah, that's definitely been, uh, that's a more recent addition to uh, the, the staple stacks pieces that has been really impactful because being able to get these effects out early uh is really key um it's a lot tougher for instance if you're going forth playing stacks you get uh, your opponent's getting a whole turn to deploy their mana rocks and their ristic studies and mystic remoras uh really changes the game and so being able to more consistently hit a piece uh like deafening silence where all you need is a planes tap that cast it boom that's already a really impactful turn one that's like the the impact that has is really similar to a card like Mystic Remora. It's just operating on a, a bit of a different axis. Yeah, it's almost doing the inverse effect. Mm. Um, the the other key type of uh, stacks hate you'll see is artifact hate. Like we mentioned, treasures from Dockside, Mana Rocks, um, even cards like Birthing Pod. Uh, if they can't activate, they don't do anything. So um, cards like Null Rod and specifically a Collector Oof. Uh, these are some of the most warping cards you can get into play as a Sax player because the way that your opponents are looking to develop their resources no longer works. Yeah, they're just really good cards. They're really efficient at what they do. Null Rod and Collector also only being two mana. It allows them to somewhat match the speed of the format. It's actually pretty interesting too. Like people develop their resources. They keep really fast hands. They drop all these mana rocks and then... You know, the green player, after everyone's done their thing, just goes, mm, play like a spirit guide or, or exile spirit guide, play a land, 
here's a collector roof. And it, and nobody, and everyone's developed, everyone's dropped their whole hand. So they don't have anything anymore. And then you've got collector roof kind of just kind of holding this whole board state together. And then, then you start kind of like adding layered effects, like the rule of law or the Eidolons or the next card I want to mention kind of both in a very similar vein is like these, these, asymmetrical like opposition agent and Dranith magistrate specifically Dranith magistrate being in my opinion i think it's the it's the most warping out of all these effects mm. for what it does and the way it affects the game because eventually Dranith magistrate it's a two mana one three human wizard great creature types by the way um it being white and one your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hands so we've talked about Underworld Breach. We've talked about being able to cast spells from Exile. But ultimately, it prevents your opponents, not you, just your opponents from casting their commanders. So would you want to uh, add anything about Dranith Magistrate and its effect on the format? Specifically, this card has been really disliked in casual play because um, you know, if you read it, you can see that your commanders aren't in your hand typically. So if this thing hits the table before you're able to cast your commander, your commander's locked down until Dranith is gone. So even if you're totally fair deck that isn't looking to do any graveyard or exile shenanigans, uh, not being able to have access to your commander can be really devastating for a lot of archetypes. And the fact that it doesn't prevent the player who's using it to do that means that this card is also the most splashable, I would say, of these stacks effects. So a deck that looks to cast a lot of spells, for instance, like Blue Farm, they're not really going to be interested in Deafening Silence, even if they are looking to slow down the game. But Dranith Magistrate doesn't hurt them. It lets them attack with Timna. Um, we mentioned before how um, effects that are on creatures tend to be a little bit more valuable because they are a lot harder to counter. So, for instance, if you have a counter spell um, like Swan Song. Uh, Null Rod is something that you can hit, but Collector Oof, actually with Swan Song, I don't think you can hit a Null Rod, but let's say something like uh, Offer You Can't Refuse. You can't, you can hit a Null Rod, you can't hit a Collector Oof, and you can't hit a Dranith. And Dranith even being a 1-3 is actually pretty relevant because it can block your Timnas of the world and a lot of these relevant creatures. It's just, it does a lot of what white decks want to do with no cost attached to it at all. It's one of those cards that I mean I'm not gonna lie if if it if it was to get banned because of casual I would not be upset <laughs> just because like a card like that it, it'd be different if the card said players can't cast spells mm-hmm. from anywhere other than their hands like I think cards like that that are two mana hyper efficient like it's pretty wild to see something like that that essentially prevents from playing what commander is supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's one of those kind of like Dockside. It it punishes you for playing the game. It it, it in this way it, it locks it off instead of uh, empowering you. And even a deck that is you know more on the proactive side, if you're in white, because you just get to kind of stop the the stuff your opponent's doing. Even if it just you know you cause them to tutor for a removal spell. You know, you're getting rid of two resources on top of just stopping the person, the people in between getting to that. Um, it's one of those cards that can have like a really invisible sort of impact on the game, but it's really noticeable. Yeah. Um, an opposition agent can do a lot of the same. Um, this one is, is typically why you'll see players in CDH when they crack a fetch nowadays. They don't just start searching. They wait to see if the table does anything. 
because uh, as long as there's a single untapped land, you have to worry about Dark Ritual into Opposition Agent. And that can be really devastating to miss your land drops. You know, you go for a tutor, for instance, if you're a really dockside heavy deck, you go to tutor for your dockside and opponent flashes an opposition agent. They're not only exiling your dockside, they get to utilize it. Um, it's not typically something you'll see in the really highly proactive decks, but uh, it's something just about every deck gets hit by. And it's again, one of those asymmetrical effects on a creature. So it's it's something that can really be hard to deal with. Yeah, it just bogs down the game. It rewards the player who's playing it, um, especially like a deck like Blue Farm that can pivot between a typically, I wouldn't say this like super fast deck, but it has the ability to do it. But if they're more of a mid-range deck now, so this it, it falls into the play patterns of what they want to do by leaving up mana and resources, being able to flash it in. And again, it being a human... Um, us come up having those relevant creature types, especially like Dranith Magistrate, it just ultimately kind of, you get this like cascading snowball effect of these decks having like all these really high impactful like human creatures that you'll see. We'll uh, discuss one later on in Ranger Captain, Esper Sentinel's a human as well. So uh, the last thing I want to talk about is with the stacks pieces that are creatures, you'll, you, like I said, you'll tend to see these be more popular because they can be hard to deal with, especially you get a card like Ardalon of Rhetoric that's a 1-4 it can block almost everything. Uh, can't be killed with lightning bolts or braids. The other tricky part of these decks is you'll typically see them either in a deck like Winota, which is able to um, put them straight into play without you being able to interact. So for example, um, if you were holding up a card like lightning bolt, for say, to um, or a chain of vapor to deal with something, uh, they can put out a card like Sanctum Prelate, which isn't on this list, but is a really relevant piece that can stop you from being able to cast one cost spells before you can respond. And uh, same with like if they do a creature tutor, like a lot of green decks, if they tap out for a court of calling, maybe you think they're going to get something to protect themselves and then they get a collector roof and suddenly you're shut off and you didn't choose to respond. Um, it just, uh, there's just another layer to these creature based pieces that hate you out because there's so many ways to put them straight into play where you can't deal with them before it happens. You have to you have to almost anticipate it and do what you need to do before it happens. And speaking of creature tutors, that's what we're moving into, into tutors. Um, there's a lot of variety of tutors. A lot of these effects are really different, which is kind of interesting. Um, you have sort of the really typical ones that you've probably seen, like Demonic Tutor, Diabolic Intent. Um, you have the more specific ones like the Instant Speed Tutors, Vampiric Tutor, Enlightened Tutor, Mystical Tutor. Um, typically, uh, maybe a hot take, but actually Vampiric Tutor probably being like these sort of effects kind of being better in a lot of ways than something like a Demonic Tutor because it only costing one mana. As we said, uh, your plays are going to be hyper efficient here. Spending half the mana and being able to wait, cast it at Instant Speed, super critical in a format like this. Um, and, um, so yeah, typically you have straight to hand tutors, top deck tutors, and then the into play tutors, which are really interesting. And, and like I was saying with the stacks pieces can really change the way you make plays because uh, an opponent casts a spell like Neoform, you can't, you know, answer a creature. If, if they Neoform into a collector roof, the collector roof hits before you can, uh, tap your artifacts to, to deal with it. Once it's in there, it's gone. So. Uh, a lot of the tutors can be really tricky and are a son of the uh, the grease that 
keeps the parts moving for a lot of CDH decks. Yeah, I'll give you a little uh, antidote on something like that is a card like Eldritch Evolution. So for like specifically, the creature isn't on here, but Dosen, uh, Fallen Leaf, it says uh, players can't play spells on their opponent's turns. So if I Eldritch Evolution, a lot of people just assume in like a deck like Corvold, I'm getting Dockside Extortionist. In reality, I'll probably be getting Dosen because I might already have access to the Dockside in my hand. Um, and then as soon as the Eldritch Evolution resolves... Because they might be thinking, oh, if I counter whatever the Dockside player is going to be doing, like their Ad Nauseam or something, I'm good to go. Dosin comes into play and automatically it shuts off everything outside of a card like Beseju of Ottawara or um, Ottawara. So it's one of those things of just understanding what your opponents are doing and just how powerful some of these tutors can really be, especially if they put a creature directly into play and the impact of the game they could have. Yeah, so the creature basers we mentioned... um... Azure Evolution, Court of Calling, Neoform. I think the last one on here is Finale of Devastation, which really interestingly is also used as a win condition for some decks. If you're able to get an infinite mana outlet, for instance, in a deck like Dominic with Thrasios, uh, you're able to draw your entire deck, put all of your creatures into play, and then use Finale of Devastation to make them all infinitely large and attack the table and win. So that one's a especially flexible one. And it also searches the graveyard as well, which uh, can be easy to miss. Uh, making this just like easily the most flexible. It usually costs a bit more mana than what you might put into something like uh, other Revolution or Neoform. But the flexibility it has is just absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it's such a fantastic card. It's it's probably outside of Besaju, like cuz we talked about this earlier Besaju being like kind of the last true green staple but it's it's probably like that card that it's really underappreciated of how good it is cuz we just take into account like oh it tutors up a combo piece or whatever but again the ability to just have a built-in win condition in your tutor it's pretty wild that also if you choose if this again small scenario but somebody opposition agent you you could choose to search the graveyard and then that way they don't get the ability of opposition agent. It allows you to dodge oppo agent, which is pretty cool. Um, some other um, notable ones here. Uh, cards like Imperial Recruiter, and it's it's not here, but uh, Recruiter of the Guard. Uh, essentially the same effect, a little bit different. Based, it's based on toughness. As we mentioned, this deck, the, the format tends to have really efficient cards. So when you have creatures like uh, Doxa Extortionist, for instance, that are... Um, really key to a lot of strategies a card like imperial recruiter that may appear limited uh, on the surface uh actually can tend to have a lot of flexibility in really creature heavy decks where you know a lot of what you're running is at one or two toughness or one or two power and um you actually get a lot of options for what you search for and that same thing sort of applies to spell seeker it can't get an adnos or a force of will which can be relevant but being able to spell seeker for something like a neoform Neoform away the Spellseeker, get some 4-drop that you need. Um, the flexibility of the tutor slot is really the power here. Not everything is just try to get the one good card you need. You know, It's not all just tutor for Dockside. Sometimes you these afford you um, a lot of different lines, especially in decks that aren't black where you have to tutor for another tutor to get a thing. It can be really skill testing um, and is where you can really get rewarded for knowledge of the deck and the format. Yeah, especially like a card, like you said, a card like Spellseeker. 
And again, it sets up lines with like Infemerate and the non-black decks being able to blink, get Infemerate to blink the Spellseeker to then now go get something else um, like uh, Final Fortune, then cast the Final Fortune, take an additional turn, the Infemerate blinks the Spellseeker again, you go get a card like Enlightened Tutor, you cast Enlightened Tutor still during your upkeep, you go get Underworld Breach and bada bing bada boom, you just did the thing with one Spellseeker, which is pretty powerful. The last one would be Praetor's Grasp. So this is a really interesting card that isn't even exactly a typical tutor. Uh, Praetor's Grasp lets you search an opponent's library for a card, shuffle it, exile it, and then um, you may cast that card as long as it's exiled. So this can be a card that's used as, uh, for example, like a hate piece. For instance, if you're in a more reactive deck, maybe you search your opponent. You know your opponent's about to tutor up. A win con that they need, you can Praetor's Grasp, get rid of it, it's exiled, they don't have it anymore. But it also, uh, in more cases, I think, lets you just get the good stuff cards that you know in deck. So, for instance, uh, you have a Demonic Consultation in your hand, you're able to Praetor's Grasp, an opponent who you know runs Thassa's Oracle or is really likely to run Thassa's Oracle, get their Thassa's Oracle, or you can get their Dockside. Um, it's a way that you can uh, use your format knowledge to... Uh, really exploit your opponents having really powerful stuff and can also be used just to get you some information. You know, you, you do get to look through their library. So especially if you're in a tournament setting, um, an early Praetor's Grass can get you information you might want, but um, it's, it's just a really flexible card. Yeah. To note about Praetor's Grass is you can Praetor's Grass an opponent, even if an opposition agent is out because opposition agent says whenever a player searches their library, you're not, you're searching opponent's library. So it still is a great, it's a, that's why it's so flexible because it again has that text and it's pretty interesting to, um, this card was kind of debated for a while in the community, whether it was like, should it be played? Should it not be played? Um, I don't think I've ever used this card as a hate piece. I'll be honest. It's mm. always typically a proactive piece, typically getting a card like a Thoracle, but mostly I always like to search up like a silence effect or an opponent's dockside, ad nauseum breach, basically all the powerful cards. Um, it's a really good three mana tutor in that regard. It's, it's just, it's pretty fantastic. It also allows you to have access to something that you may not readily have access to in your hand. So if there is like a stacks piece shutting you down, and you know your opponent's on a card like Force of Vigor or something just like that, you can go tutor it up and be able to utilize that type of effect. Uh, Prairie's Guest is a really good card, and any deck that can really support that card in terms of like four colors, uh, like four color decks like Temnacrom, I would highly suggest considering this card. Just the flexibility I think is worth it, even if you're just getting a Mana Crypt. Like if you just need something as simple as a Mana Crypt, it's worth it in that regard slightly less exciting maybe uh aspect of the game but the uh lands the mana base that you'll tend to see in cdh um so cdh um can tend to be a high color format you'll, you'll see a lot of four color partner decks five color decks like najiva and kenrith um so you'll see a lot of mana fixing and five color lands um the fetches the dual lands the shock lands to a lesser extent um, cards like City of Brass, Tarnish Citadel, Spire of Industry, Command Tower. Um, these cards that really let you fix your colors so that you're more reliably able to cast whatever it is you need in your early turns. Uh, typically, the land count in CDH is really low. You're running usually less than 30 uh, lands, as low as like 20-ish for some really greedy monocolor decks. 
Um, so you really want to reliably have the one or two land drops you might get in your hand, be able to cast any of the spells you need them to. Yeah, so this format is very much fetch dual dependent uh, by and large, where your fetch lands are going to go get your dual lands. And what I mean by dual lands, specifically like the original dual lands, um, then you have your secondary dual lands that are the shock lands. So your mana base kind of starts there to help fix your colors. Um, I think a card that's probably ubiquitous in a lot of decks is cards like is a card like Ancient Tomb, just because it is two colorless mana on a land. It deals you two damage, but the value you get off of that allows you to really speed up your deck, unless your deck just inherently doesn't need the two colorless. Um, Ancient Tomb's on a ton of decks, that's why it's on the list. Um, and then that's going to like bring you over into the other like soul ring land effects. So outside of ancient tomb, you're going to have city of traders, which is essentially like kind of like a ritual land. Um, notably with city of traders, it adds two colors to your mana pool. And it says, if you play a land, sacrifice city of traders, uh, it is city of traders unaffected. If a fetch lands already on the battlefield and you crack your fetch land to go get another one, cause you're not playing it, you're putting it into play. And same thing as if you're casting a card that was just in our recent category, crop rotation, crop rotation will not make you sacrifice your city of traders. So there's still little ways to play around it, but just again, having a card to allow you to accelerate like that. And if the theme of what we've been talking about, uh, mana protection and draw cards is really, really important in this format. And then that brings us to our last Soul Ring effect plan, essentially. And that's going to be Phyrexian Tower. The benefit for Phyrexian Tower is it taps for just a colorless, but then you can sacrifice a creature to add black, black to your mana pool. So unlike the other two, which only adds colorless, Phyrexian Tower really allows you to take advantage of cards like Rograk, Dockside Extortionist, even a Mana Dork. And been able to utilize those to essentially put a to basically create like a ritual like effect, and especially cards like ad nauseum, Purivis, necromancy, being so heavy on like the double black to triple black pips. This card here allows you to really kind of fix your colors in that. It's a pretty powerful card, in my opinion. Yeah, the last sort of uh, acceleration land that we'll, I want to talk about is Gaia's Cradle. Um, really heavy green decks can utilize this to tremendous effect. You may have seen it in casual or legacy or vintage. Um, really powerful land that can, in the right deck, make four or five mana even enough on its own to uh, activate a Thrasios. Typical play pattern you might see is somebody who has a few lands and a lot of dorks out. Uh, crop rotation on an instep, get Gaia's Cradle, tap it, activate their Thrasios or power out a Court of Calling or Finale of Devastation uh, really lets you accelerate without having to do any sort of investment. It's just a powerful land. It does require creatures to be in play to be useful, but typically the decks that use it, that's not a problem. Yeah. The one thing about Cradle is it does not tap for any mana on its own, so it doesn't tap for colors or inherently a green. That's the only slight, slight, slight downside to it had. So just be mindful of when you're uh, keeping your hands and mulliganing that you're not just relying on the pure power level of Cradle because it can just set there. And if you especially need to cast a turn one drop, like Cradle in a turn one drop does not work. So just understand that that does have a very small limitation. But the reason why I didn't mention the soul, the soul land, soul ring land effect, because it's typically like, I don't know how to, it's typically like Lotus Plus. So it's, it's so, it's so broken once it's online. So for some of the more utility type lands, um, 
The most common one you're going to see in almost every single deck is Gemstone Caverns. Uh, if you're not familiar with this land, if it's in your opening hand and you're not the, if you're not going first, you can begin the game with it in play and you exile a card from your hand. It'll enter with a luck counter, which means it'll tap for any color of mana. Um, typically the land only taps for colorless. It's not really great as a draw, but being able to start with a land in play, for instance, if you're a deck that looks to interact a lot, it means you can do something like, uh, swan song or, uh, miscast something before you even get to make your real land drop and just, just another way to accelerate. Yeah. Been able to gemstone caverns and cast a vampiric tutor or worldly tutor or mystical tutor or enlightened tutor, any of your instant speed tutors on essentially your turn zero is pretty broken. I I don't know how many times I've felt like if I've ever like just been able to like especially like gemstone caverns into a vampiric tutor. It you just feel like you're just like I'm so far ahead. Like it's it's so it's such a disgusting card. There is a downside to it because once you're past that and you don't get it, there's a reason why it has a luck counter on it because it you ha- you feel pretty lucky when you get it. I just think the inherent power level of it, it just it's it's a must in our format. Even in the decks that are trying to slow the games down, they're looking for ways to even accelerate themselves into the pieces that try to slow the other decks down. So a stacks decks is going to run a traditional like mid-range stacks list they're going to play a card like gemstone caverns because that allows them to get online faster yep definitely one of the most popular ways to sort of accelerate because the downside is just either it comes in for colorless which can be not that big of a downside depending on the deck or you just dump the worst card in your hand the upside is huge and so it's really popular Urza's Saga, if you're familiar with any format where this is legal, you're going to see this card. Um, not every deck can support it, but most decks are running artifacts that cost zero or one. The construct part of it, not as key here, but really it's just the land with the only downside of it taps for colorless, but with the big upside of being able to get specific cards like Soul Ring, for instance, which just kind of makes this a, a big upgrade. You even get access to the mana the, the turn you sacrifice it. So it becomes basically a land that taps for three on the third turn. Um, some decks that run hate pieces like Graph Digger's Cage can get it, or there's a few decks that are really relying on cards like Skull Clamp or Jeweled Lotus. It's just a really flexible card that um, if you're in a deck that can afford to wait for two or three turns to get a specific piece online, it's it's going to be worth it to run this card. Yeah, so this card was first notably like kind of disregarded by a lot of the CDH community, uh, uh, the, all the wise heads out there, because they said it's too slow for Commander. And I think it's because people look at it as it needs to be a immediate payoff. But once you actually look at Ursus Saga, as a card like a City of Traders, a Phyrexian Tower, a Ancient Tomb, it's it's like a it, you said it perfectly. It's essentially a ritual on that turn. Now, if you already have your Soul Ring and your Mana Crypt out, then you're just already doing it. But it does tutor up a card like Jewel Lotus as well. So it's very hard to not hit a target with this Mana Vault. Um, if your deck's on Sensei's Divining Top, it allows you to tutor for top. Some decks randomly have Skull Clamp, like the Tevish decks. So I think the card needs to be explored a little bit more. The only the only downside is not really a downside. It's just that we almost have too many good cards in our mana base now, and it's really hard jockeying for those slot positions. So just be considerate of like whatever deck you're building. 
and can it support an additional colorless land? Is that card worth it or not? Like, what's the equity that card's going to give you? And is it going to affect your draws? Because I used to play this card in, like, um, when I was playing uh, Timno Kadama, the, like, the pod variant with Sidisi, mm -hmm. and the deck had so many colorless lands in it, and I just, I just had to, I, I, it was virtually unplayable because like if they like deal with your Kadama, it's really hard to like put things back into play because you're on so many of these colorless lands because you're trying to get cute in reality, just because you're on a bunch of dorks and, and stuff doesn't mean that your mana is perfect. So just be wary of that card. The card's really powerful. I very much consider putting it in my list, um, but I just don't have a slot for it. It's one of those things that it's like, oh, wow, it does get mana vault you know, those type of cards, like on the turn, I'm trying to cast a big spell. It does randomly provide you a resource if needed. So, um, but cards pretty good. I think we'll see more as, as we see more, de more decks come out and more um, good colored cards. So we could play lower powered or lower colored decks. If that's a thing, if that's possible, <laughs> um, this card might see a pretty big uptick in play as the format continues to evolve. Or if there's just something that's just, so inherently good to tutor for. Yeah. I will say uh, one last note on this card. Um, as much as you would like to, you can't tutor for something like an Esper Sentinel. It has to have exactly mana cost zero or one generic mana, not mana value. So I would love to be able to tutor for an Esper Sentinel and put it into play. Unfortunately, you can't. It's got to be a Soul Ring, a Mana Crypt, something like that. Yeah, same with uh, a card like Chalice the Void, because Chalice is XX. Even though it's zero, it's not specifically labeled zero. So thankfully, you can't get Chalice of the Void with it. <laughs> that so that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I was just going to touch up on, we've already talked about a little bit about Odawara, and but we talked quite a bit about Viseju, but just that land cycle in general, um, they all see play in some capacity. So the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty uh, channel lands, they all see play in like respected decks. The black one probably seeing the least amount of play, but it's still there as a viable source for like low color decks. I've played around with it a little bit. It's again, you're jockeying for slots of is this slot that good or, you know, is, is it does it deem necessary for it? But we've already talked about the green one. Technically, they're colors, but we've talked about the green one and the blue one. Um, We've seen the Seed of the Empire, which helps these white-based decks be able to kill cards like Timna, Krom, those type of stuff, because it channels pretty easily. And then the red one sees play in decks like Winona. So it's they all see a fair amount of play in their regard, because they're just upgrades to strict basics. Sans worrying about something like a Magus or a Blood Moon effect. Yeah, I think while we're on lands, it is uh, worth talking about that. Um it may seem like uh, this would be a, a great format for a car like Magus of the Moon and Blood Moon. But uh, because the, the the format tends to be very low in basics for most decks that aren't monocolored. Um, but specifically with cards like Dockside, turns out you can still cast a Dockside if all your lands are mountains. Once you get the treasures, you don't really care about Blood Moon too much. Um the source of mana for most players isn't through lands. A lot of times your lands are just powering out talismans or soul rings, and then uh, you don't really care too much about it because if you're getting your mana from a Mox Diamond, you don't really care that your Misty Rainforest is a mountain. Um, so that can be uh, a, 
sort of a, a thing you might expect to see would be the mana bases punished more than they are. But we do see cards like Archon of Amiria, which can really put a damper on these kind of decks because just about it makes almost every single land come into play tapped. And um, the other reason you'll see that is because Tainted Pack, a key card I don't think we've gotten to yet. Um, you can't run duplicates of lands, even including basics. So typically decks that are on basics, uh, if they're in black, they're only going to run one of each because they have to have that singleton mana base because Tainted Pack with Oracle is just something your deck has to run. Right. Um, and that comes... That covers most of everything, minus just like the very few niche, um, and not, I don't want to say super niche, but the few like um, ability lands like Cephala Coliseum and Emergent Zone. That's like the last few little things we have to cover. Yeah, Cephala Coliseum, again, we haven't gotten to Thassa's Oracle yet, but we sure have mentioned it a lot. Kind of there specifically to punish any deck that's looking to get rid of its library as a win condition. Um, you can. If, if As long as Cephalic Coliseum is up, you have the option to deck an opponent who's going to do something like that. Whether they're doing Brain Freeze stuff or uh, Thassa's Oracle, they have to keep in mind your Cephalic Coliseum. And then Emergent Zone being a way to give all of your spells flash. Maybe an underplayed... It feels like this card should be played more than it is just because of how crazy the effect is, but it, it lines up to work better in some decks than it does in others. So just a, a deck to think about, and especially decks that are in green that can crop rot into this or crop rotation into emergent zone is just something that has to get to keep in mind and keep you on your toes yeah I, I i think the card is inherently when you look at it for one mana it's pretty busted like it's actually mm-hmm. a busted effect because flash is really really broken like it's a broken effect in our format and especially being able to flash in underworld breach on an opponent's turn is like is pretty wild, especially like you have player uh, let to your left, and then these two players are starting to go at it, and they're just they're they're casting their spells. One person tries to cast ad nauseum, the other person does this, and then you get to cast your ad nauseum, or you get to flash in your breach and just win on the spot. So their resources instead of letting like the third player get to untap or get to do their thing next. So just being able to have that just that slight effect. Uh, that's just kind of there as long as it's not affecting your mana base and your mulligans and the way your game plan is too much. And you're not jamming too many colorless utility lands into your deck. Uh, I think there is a very finite number of those before your deck really starts to like kind of fall apart and your draws aren't as clean and smooth and consistent. Um, but emergency zones one, if you got crop rotation, I would highly consider it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think with that, we can move on from Lance. This is another category that um as you dive into more specific colors what you see starts to pop up and, and look a lot different you start to see fast lands more just different types of things based on the colors and uh, what your deck is trying to do will really determine a lot of what the mana base looks like um, so now we're going into sort of the most vague category but i had to put them somewhere so these are your uh value cards so how they generate value can be pretty different uh, a lot of these are extremely different cards operating almost like opposites but um the main thing they have in common is that they they tend to synergize with some sort of game plan or provide you something either on board or some sort of value that just helps you to get what you need going and in a category that doesn't quite fit into just the pure ramp or draw sort of uh sections of this you want to lead us off on alasaur shepherd yeah alasaur shepherd one of the few good green cards 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, so this is just, as we've mentioned a lot of times, counter spells absolutely are a huge part of this format. Um, Having a spell that can't be countered by itself is good. And when it gives your other spells, you know, specifically Alice Lord Shepherd gives your green spells uncounterable. Um, in a low color green deck, just having blue shut off from being able to interact with you is extremely critical. It's th- this is the card that when you drop it turn one, it doesn't matter too much. But then turn three, you're winning and no one can stop you. Um, it's a really powerful piece of, of, um, of value in this format where you just get to do your thing and green decks. That's really what they want to do. They want to be left alone and get to do their typically more proactive plan. Or even if you're in like a mid range deck, if you're in a deck like Thrasios, um, Thrasios Bruce, for instance, uh, you don't want people to counter your finale of devastation, you know, and being able to spin, you know, you tap out for a finale for X equals five to get your Seaborn muse, you know, Alistair Shepard is there covering you. Even if somebody bounces it to then be able to counter it, you've eaten two cards, and if you have free interaction, you're just absolutely just destroying the table at that point. Yeah, card's pretty good. It's not ubiquitous in, like, every deck, but it's really, really solid, and it being an elf just gives it tremendous upside. And it also has a built-in win condition in a deck that plays, like, all your elf packages, too. Being able to turn them all into, like, 5-5 dinosaurs. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, which is just a really cool effect. It's a lot more relevant in like legacy elves, stuff like that, but still like um like we mentioned with decks like Timna, like combat damage is still a thing in this format. If people are using their life total, you know, somebody does an ad nauseum that doesn't quite get them there. Allosaurus Shepherd sitting there being able to make, you know, three elves, five fives, you know, that that's uh some pretty decent power there. Speaking of cards that are too much, uh, Ragavan Nimble Pilferer, if you play any oh. format where this is legal, uh, you are very familiar with this card and you're probably sick of it. Um, probably the Never. best one drop ever printed. Um, this is one of those cards that almost slots into any single red deck. The very dedicated sort of turbo decks that aren't looking to do any creature nonsense, like a, a Rogsai. I, I think they might even be on Ragavan at some list, but yeah, just they're, like, yeah, they're on Ragavan. Um, there's a few decks where you might not run it, where you don't care as much about creatures or attacking. Um, it just doesn't fit your game plan. But Ragavan is almost just a better dork. Um, if if your meta is very creature heavy, it, it, it can be rough. But in most tables, Ragavan just gets to deal two damage a turn, draw you a card. Essentially, even better than drawing a card because you're exiling from your opponent. And making a treasure. It's just a ton of value. Um, having the high roll potential of just playing like turn one Ragavan, hit your opponent's dockside turn two, which I've done. It's amazing. Um, it's, it's really hard to overstate just how big of an impact Ragavan can have. Even if it's whiffing, being able to stock up treasures is already just better than being a mana dork. You get in a couple times uh, with Ragavan, you get two or three treasures stocked up for a later turn where you're trying to go off. It just, uh, becomes this ridiculous value engine for one mana. Yeah, so the thing about Ragavan is I hear it a lot is like Ragavan's not good past turns two, and I just very much disagree with that. If you look at the way contextually the format's built, the format's built on a lot of X2s, so it allows you to block and attack into Temna. There's a, 
I've seen, I've been in part of it. I've seen it a lot of times, especially in turn, like tournament play, where the Ragavan just attacks into the Timna player, and Timna's not going to block. Eventually, the Timna player has to decide whether the blocking of Ragavan's more valuable than having the Timna effect. And there's the, a lot of these like really interesting uh, scenarios where Ragavan comes up being two power. Um, so I, I think that that is very that statement's kind of overblown in that regard of that it's just ineffective. It also has the dash mechanic, which you can dash it in and gives it haste. So it allows you to pick off like someone's top deck tutor who's just kind of cast a top deck tutor very sloppily. And then you're able to just dash it in, steal whatever they got, especially if it's something like if it's Vampiric Tutor of that or Imperial Seal of that nature. Um, it's really punishing for those. But Ragavan is just such a great card. And to see it played in decks that don't have a lot of attackers or dorks. So if you look at a deck like a Rogsai, Rogsai is on like, I think, less than six creatures. Mm. And seeing how Ragavan is one of those cards, slots in, or Blue Farm, or any type of like Krom Ikra style build. The decks that you don't really see it in, you don't see it in like uh Thrasios Bruce, just because it's that deck really just isn't about Ragavan per se. It's very much about the super, super long game. So Ragavan doesn't really fit that deck as much. I don't think it's necessarily a negative in that list, because that deck can win very fast. But um Ragavan's an inherently really powerful card. Again, another card that allowed Red to up its power level and speed and consistency. Don't want to get into all of these because they do all work in really different kind of ways. Um, going through a couple of them quickly, Sensei's Divining Top can be a really key card in uh, certain decks that like to combo with it, like Elsha, um, and can just be good in lower color decks that are looking for uh, specific card selection. Um, not as much of a staple as it has been in other formats, uh, but still a really good card. Um, probably the closest thing here you'll see to staples, though, are in Ranger Captain of Eos and Grand Abolisher. These are the cards that Eric is most jealous of not being able to run in Corvold. Facts. Um, <laughs> um, specifically with Ranger Captain of Eos, this is one of, if not the best creatures in CDH currently. Um, it has the joint uh, ability to one it's a tutor so it, you know i could have put it in that slot typically it's grabbing right uh um something Esper ridiculous Sentinel. like esper sentinel but also like we mentioned alisaur shepherd great card in certain decks ragavan another great pick uh sylvan safekeeper mana dorks uh really just there's a lot of one drops in this format that it can grab but uh, the key part of it is its sacrifice ability, being able to stop your opponents from casting non-creature spells this turn. Um, it gives it the dual ability to just be deployed as sort of a stack piece where your opponents know they can't go off as long as Ranger Captain's in play. You're able to sacrifice it on someone's upkeep, keep them from casting their big spells. Um, it, and then also, you can really just deploy it. No one's allowed to win because they know Ranger Captain's in play. And then when it gets to your turn, you sacrifice it. It's usually not ability unless someone's running a stifle that they can stop. Um, and then you're able to just go off and they can't do their counter magic or their interaction. So it's a piece that is like a stacks piece that also rewards you for being proactive. Uh, it really just does everything you want to do in a, in a creature in these colors. Yeah, the card is super fantastic and it just, there's really not much to say. It's, it's, Outside of Dockside Extortionist, it's right up there easily to me as the 
the best, one of the best creatures in the format. It's it's just super powerful. Again, also being a human, which you know matters in certain decks that play like like Cavern of Souls. So, um, so some that may seem um a little out of place. Um, we kind of mentioned why Seaborn uses here. Uh, it may seem like a like a casual kind of big. Like you know, you you, you may think like oh, a five-mana creature, it's probably hard for it to be impactful enough here to be a staple. Um, you ever play against this card, you'll immediately realize why that's not the case. Um, like we mentioned, Seaborn Muse with Thrasios is such a powerful pseudo-combo synergy that um, it can be really hard to win at a point where someone puts that together. If you're not able to immediately remove one half of that combo, um, you just get drowned in advantage. Yeah, I jokingly call Seaborn Muse plus Thrasios the green ad nauseum. That's like the slow nas, but it it's just it generates a lot of value. It's very tutorable with cards like Imperial Recruiter, Eldritch Evolution, those type of cards because they're able to sack like a value creature just to go put it directly into play. Decks like Kennen really, really take advantage of a card like Seaborn Muse. Yeah, and so... Um... Two of these that can be kind of lumped together, Professional Facebreaker and Grim Hireling. Uh, these both have what is uh, referred to typically as Timna text, where they can trigger for each player that, that you hit. Um, being able to make mana for doing something that a lot of decks, like we said, like Timna likes to do anyways, they just slot to that game plan perfectly. Um, and then you get a card like Ragavan in the mix too. You're hitting people, you're making like two treasures off of Ragavan, one off, you know, one off the Facebreaker, one off the Timna, drawing three cards. It really just adds up to this ridiculous sort of um, aggressive uh, value engine that they're able to assemble. On the professional facebreaker and the grim hireling, they're pretty interesting because professional facebreaker. What's really noted about these cards is they allow you to play through collector oof, and that's something that kind of want people to see that you can sacrifice the treasure because it's the facebreaker that's sacrificing the treasure get to exile the top card of your library and you may play that card. So it allows you to still be able to go through your treasures to fight through collector oof. And same with Grim Hireling. Grim Hireling's doing the sacrificing of the treasures. So if there's an oof out, you can just pay a black, sack two treasures, kill kill the collector oof and continue on with your life. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these are just good, like Grand Abolisher, really good card. Dothy Voidwalker, good graveyard hate that gives you uh, value. Eternal Witness, typically not just played to get you a card. It's really one of those cards that just has a lot of versatility where sometimes it's just you play the Eternal Witness, you get your Dockside back and get to replay it. Uh, there's a lot of loops with Eternal Witness and uh, some specific cards. Um, really just a card that's here for the versatility and the effect being on a creature uh, tends to just be better because looping it, copying it, a lot of these things are able to be... Um, done multiple times better on a creature which is why you see a card like eternal witness here and a card like regrowth which has the same effect but being even cheaper uh not being as, as widely played and then we get over to like another great value creature which is Bergy, god of storytelling so Bergy's really such an interesting card because it's a three mana three three but it allows you to continue with your storm ability because whenever you cast a spell you add a red mana until the end of turn. You don't lose this mana through steps and phases. So you're able to do things, float mana through combat. It's really, really powerful. If you've ever had a Bergy and you're going off on a storm turn, you might as well not ever click your like die or whatever you're using to keep track of your red mana down because it's essentially just replacing itself every time. And then that's not accounting for the fact of casting like zero mana rocks into it. 
it just really, really helps you explode. In and we've talked about this with red. It allows those storm terms to basically be like autopilot. Sometimes with these decks, like the Grixis based decks that do storm effects, they're, they don't have access to the green. So some of the green mana effects. So post ad nauseum, it's not always guaranteed that they just have it, but a card like Bergy really just officially makes that happen. And then it's backside being Harnfeld horn of bounty. It's essentially, I, I, Matt, how would you describe this card? It's it's not ad nauseum, but it's, it's essentially um, like a very similar like it it can really just get you a tremendous amount of cards. Yeah, it's it's an effect that it doesn't even look like if especially if you if you get to play that with a lot of cards in hand, it's an effect that like the first time you see someone use it, you kind of want to like double take because it doesn't look like you should be able to just get rid of a card, get two cards. It's it's just a really absurd effect. Um it's it's a tricky one because it's not something you want to typically like. For instance, if you have to power this out with three or four rituals, um, it, it can be a little tough to get value out of it. But having the flexibility to have Bergy turn your cards into mana or turn your dead cards into new cards, is it uh, it does both of the things a Storm Ad Nauseum deck wants to do. Like you mentioned, Bergy's front half can just turn it on autopilot where making the red man is something you don't have to worry about. So when you're, for instance, you're casting something like a Chrome Mox, you don't really have to think about what you're exiling, just something that's not red. It's already turning your free rocks into red mana. And then because a lot of times you're going off with something like an Underworld Breach at the end, or uh, maybe even setting up a Final Fortune, it's so easy to turn that red into more stuff. And then if you whiff, you can get the mana to cast Harnfell. There is no way you lose with an Adnoth. <laughs> You have Harnfell in play, yeah. you cannot lose with an ad nauseum because you're getting the entire rest of your deck. It's an absolutely absurd card. Okay, I think we can move on to our last category. Uh, All these, right. are, these are the cards we've been mentioning almost the entire video. <laughs> uh, these are a lot of, last, right? Yeah, these are a lot of your big payoffs. Some of them have some flexibility in being able to do other things. These are cards that usually, if they're cast, it means the game is either over or somebody's going to have to cast. Uh, we mentioned specifically the big two, Underworld Breach. This card has just immediately on impact. It, it was very clear that it, it's just like a better Yogmoth's Will, which we didn't even really cover that much. The last one, Yogmoth's Will could kind of be in this slot, but Underworld Breach just being two mana and being able to specifically cast a spell from your graveyard and then not have it be exiled. That's like the key thing that makes a lot of the combos work. So for instance, Brain Freeze and Lion's Eye Diamond being able to use that with Underworld Breach, you can keep casting the Brain Freeze and the LED from your graveyard over and over. They don't go into exile as long as you have cards to escape with them. Underworld Breach, uh, Grinding Station as well, being able to use it, just being able to fill your graveyard, uh, go through your deck and just get whatever you need to win. Yeah, and a lot of these cards, like, they're going to layer on top of each other. Something like with Underworld Breach is going to be like Savine's Reclamation. As you can see, it's just one of those cards we discussed very in the beginning of the episode about Intuition Piles, along with Brain Freeze. And we've already touched upon how Thassa's Oracle combo works with Demonic Consultation and Tainted Pack. So that really takes, like, a big chunk out of it. Something that uh, I would like to really cover is just going to be the flexibility of the Dual Caster Mage Twin Flame Combo. You would you want to take it away on that one? Yeah, so this is um, probably the combo here that you're most familiar with if you're coming from Casual Commander. Um, 
at its surface, this is just a five mana A plus B combo. But what this combo really does is it has pieces that are a lot more useful. So for instance, Das's Oracle, um, good card at winning the game, really bad card to resolve in any other situation. Same with Demonic Consultation. Usually that's a, uh, I have that's to do this. Yeah, this is, yeah. this is a last ditch effort. Tainted Pact has a bit more flexibility, but, um, being able to do something like we've mentioned, a lot of these creatures, uh, that are super impactful, your, um, dock sides of the world, things like that, uh, they're good ETB effects. So if you're able to just spend two mana, for instance, get another dock side, yeah, uh, you're probably able to put together a win with something else. And the strive ability, specifically in decks like Horvold, you get to do twin flame, strive it with a dock side and eternal witness. Eternal witness gets the twin flame back. You can keep making dock sides, keep making hasty creatures, attack everybody. Um, it's really a card that has a lot more flexibility than something like a demonic consultation. Uh, and just can be a good value engine and just use it as a, like a ritual. Layering is definitely a big thing with win cons in CDH. Like, like we mentioned, um, for one, you have, like we said, the intuition pile of underworld breach, Savine's reclamation, lion's eye diamond. You're then able to. No matter what you get, you're able to end up with an Underworld Breach in play. If they give you a Lion's Eye Diamond, you can play the Lion's Eye Diamond, sack it for white, flashback Savine's Reclamation, targeting Underworld Breach and Lion's Eye Diamond, boom, you're in business. Um, then you're just getting your brain freeze. Then if you have an extra slot, you can grab that. But it's also usually uh, Underworld Breach with brain freeze. You can use it to mill your opponents out and then pass the turn or wheel. But also, turns out Thassa's Oracle, if you're emptying your library anyways, tends to be a pretty easy way to win. So you're in decks that are already running the Tainted Pack, Consultation, Thoracle line. Underworld Breach is just another way to get there, typically even more reliable, and it can be uh, hard to deal with. And then Grinding Station, again, as part of that whole package. Another flexible card that's a win con and sometimes not one is Dramatic Reversal. Um, this is one you're probably going to be familiar with, with the uh, Isochron Scepter Dramatic Reversal combo. If you have enough mana rocks out or non-land permanents to tap for mana, you can get infinite mana, uh, use this with a commander like Thrasios or with Urza, you're able to win the game. But it can also be used, like we kind of like with Twin Flame, as a ritual effect. So you play a bunch of mana rocks, you tap Dramatic Reversal, or tap to cast it, untap all your rocks, you just win up to, you know, you untap a, a couple uh, Moxes and a Mana Vault, you know, it's you just net like three mana, just a pretty good spell. Yeah, just being able to untap cards like Mana Vault, Grim Monolith is just really, really awesome. And anything too that, especially if you already have a tremendous amount of rocks that get uh, colored or colorless mana. So being able to also untap your talismans that, you know, or your arcane signets that allow you to utilize that colored mana really helps out. Like I think the Grexus style decks, especially for something in like Rog Side, this card is. Because it's typically thought of with Isochron Scepter, but just as like a ritual value card, it's pretty nice. In a lot of ways, it acts as a uh, like a serviceable time walk effect and and that effect. I know it doesn't get everything to untap, but in a lot of times in those decks, that's essentially what it's equating to being able to have access to all your resources. There, there are three cards here that don't really combo to win. They don't necessarily set up a, a win in the specific A plus B kind of way. First with Final Fortune, this is a card that quite literally loses you the game, but is is used to 
uh, get to a position, especially in these turbo decks, like we mentioned, a lot of these uh, cards that these Grixis shells use make you red mana. It's usually the easiest mana to make between that and black. And uh, being able to get a bunch of cards, set up a Nas that you can't quite win through, and then cast the Final Fortune to sculpt your perfect seven, untap, and then take an extra turn to win uh, is just becoming more and more of a popular option. Um, there are three cards with this exact cost, Final Fortune being the best of them being an instant card, uh, lets you just also sneak in a win in between turns. You see people are tapped out, so when it's their turn, Final Fortune on somebody's end step after you've seen a counter war go off, boom, you take your turn, you get to win the game. I, I'm going to let you talk mostly about Final Fortune because I'll put us in the weeds about it. I could probably <laughs> do a podcast on how this card scales in mana resources, the ability to win the game, the uh, equity you get on attempting to win the game versus giving three other players an additional turn until you get back to your turn. But let's just say that this card is really powerful and there's a reason why you see it in a lot of decks that can support it. We have two others that win the game but don't quite. I think the most uh, straightforward of them is Cure into the Abyss. Um, kind of like an ad nauseum that you don't have to build around. It, it costs a bit more mana, being four and three black pips, which, which is pretty restrictive. Um, but if you can draw half your library, like we've mentioned, there's so many free mana rocks, uh, just super efficient spells. It's not uncommon to just, you draw half your library, you drop three or four moxes, you cast the dock side, at that point, if you're in black, you're going to have access to a lot of your tutors. You, really, the world is yours at, at the point if you cast Pyrrhony the Abyss. And um, it won't win you the game itself, but it's going to, when it resolves, give you everything you need to win from there. Yeah, it really allows you to capitalize off of uh, a medium ad nauseum as, uh, I hope we don't get in trouble for saying sad nas, since that's already a group, but... Um... But I've, you've had a, a nauseum that's basically just been like a lot of lands, ritual effects, and sometimes you just didn't hit a gas or the correct tutor, which is very fair. Or you've had a very limited ad nauseum, but you're just you either got the peer off of it, so you took a big chunk of life, or you basically already had the peer, but you had the ritual effects now to cast it. Once you do that, you're going to be able if it resolves, if the ad nauseum resolves, the peer in the abyss will resolve, and you're going to be able to win the game after that. It's just. It's just like a 99% like, you know, non-official percentage that you're going to you're going to pull that one out. So, yeah, the, the the key difference with it, um, ad nauseum has the potential to kill you. For instance, say you you have to go, you know, you get down to five life, you have to go a little bit deeper than you want and you hit your force of will. Sometimes that's going to happen. Um, Pure into the abyss will always just half your life total. So even if you get down to two. You can peer, go down to one. You still get to draw your half of your deck, no matter how many cards that is, how much life you're at. And uh, it doesn't have that with potential where it's just like, you know, you could get Force of Will and a Mind Break Trap into Peer into the Abyss and just, you know, your your Nas doesn't work out. Peer is never going to have that happen. It's, it's much more consistent and you're always going to have that some amount of life left after it's done. And last is Mnemonic Betrayal. Probably the most fun one of these to get to do. Um, oh, for sure. It's like we've mentioned, Underworld Breach is a key part of the format, just using your graveyard to win. And this is a really fetch heavy format. You're, you, you have your opponents casting all these really efficient spells, their dock sides, their rituals. Those are all sitting in the graveyard. You cast a spell like Mnemonic Betrayal, which lets you play from your opponent's graveyards, which is already crazy enough. And you get to cast uh, those spells as uh, using mana as though it were mana of any color. So 
even if you're in like just a dedicated blue black deck doesn't have access to dockside and all these mana fixing things being able to just do that cast an opponent's mana vault use that mana vault to cast a jessica's will something like that being able to turn all their colorless mana sources or rituals into just any spell um it's going to be ridiculous and just again more than likely if a typical cdh game people are going to be casting multiple tutors multiple rituals and going for their own win attempts and failing so it won't be uncommon for there to be something like an ad nauseum or a pure the abyss or a breach in somebody else's graveyard use mnemonic betrayal you get access to all their stuff and then boom you can probably put together a win yeah and decks that you're going to see mnemonic betrayal in we've talked about blue farm quite a bit but a deck like blue farm or a deck like rock especially blue farm they're going that the way the games go, there's going to be a lot of interaction in the game. So a lot of cards are going to get countered, not just being able to drop into play. So when you cast a mnemonic betrayal, it's so devastating. And the the fact that it attacks their graveyards, it's almost a hate piece within itself, which is kind of silly to say, but it really depowers their underworld breaches and stuff. And typically that's not how you're casting or why you're casting, but it has that ability because it just exiles all their graveyards. And the fact that you still get to play with your graveyard is really why I think it pushed uh, Yagmas Will out. While Yagmas Will is still a, you know, it's it's a really powerful card. Like it's kind of silly to say, oh, Yagmas Will not as good as it <laughs> once was. Um, but Mnemonic Betrayal really kind of filled that slot to where you get kind of your cake and eat it too with Mnemonic Betrayal and Underworld Breach in your deck and not affecting either or. Yeah, you could definitely put Yogmoth's Will in this section. Maybe I should have because typically if you are going to cast it, it is going to be in a, in a sort of like light mnemonic betrayal kind of fashion, but just one you have a, li- a bit more control of. But a lot of the decks that are using these sort of effects, um, they're going to be wheeling a lot or going for win attempts, getting them countered or countering somebody else's. It all really synergizes and lines up. You're filling graveyards and then use your graveyard to win either through a breach or a yogmoth's will or somebody else's graveyard through demonic betrayal it all really lines up in the grixis pie to just let you do all the good stuff that you want to do yeah it's funny you say grixis pie because when i'm looking at win win cons outside of savine's reclamation being part of the combo it's all grixis yep yeah it turns out (laughs) so if that tells you anything yeah we've definitely learned that in in this video uh beyond just all the, the cards that we see here it's just Grixis is good, blue is good, blue farm is good, and Eric really likes Vault. That's true, I do, I do. But this list here is just a staples list from the deck database derived. It's not 100% indicative of what you're going to see in your format, in your metagame. Just understand that these aren't a 100% absolute, but this is, I would say, a pretty fair assessment of what to expect at a cdh table traditionally or a cdh tournament would you say that's fair yeah for sure this is definitely going to be you know if you don't know anything about cdh other than like you've seen a a bit of gameplay or a few videos um i think this is really going to help you in geez maybe three hours i don't know how long we're running at this point but just to in one sitting get through a huge chunk of like the key cards that you're going to see because a lot of times you are going to see like different, you know, maybe some different mana dorks or rocks or things or rituals get used. But a lot of the key cards that are really defining the gameplay uh, and how impactful they are, you know, I think we covered here pretty well. There's going to be things like you say, in deck specific situations that aren't going to be here. But um, that's the kind of knowledge that you're going to be able to get from, 
either more experienced pilots talking to them or seeing other gameplay or checking out some of our other videos or future podcasts. All right. What do you think? Whew, I was crazy to think we could get this down to 30 minutes. That's my first thought. <laughs> yeah. Definitely well, my first thought. Um, well, we get, you got multiple episodes, so. Yeah, we, we definitely got through there. But yeah, um, hopefully if you sat with us through this whole thing, uh, you found this helpful. Uh, if you're new, I definitely would have been able to use a resource like this. The, the database and the staples list can be really helpful. But a lot of times putting together a lot of those interactions in your head, you know, and understanding what the meta looks like when you're first getting into it, I think can be really difficult. And a lot of the cards you see, especially in the support packages, they really are meta picks and, and ways to either combat it or um, benefit from it. And so hopefully you found this helpful. And, um, you know, when you get into your first games or your next games with your pod, you're able to recognize a lot of these cards, understand what the threat is. I think that especially threat recognition can be really difficult when you don't know what cards are good. You know, Underworld Breach, when you just read it, you're like, okay, well, you know, he gets to cast a card. That sounds cool. But, you know, when you don't know exactly how good the things are, it's hard to address it. And hopefully with this video and some of our future ones or podcasts, uh, you're able to, you know, get into your games, make better decisions. And, um, you know, just learn more about this format and the cool stuff it has to offer. If you like some of these cards, you know, find the decks that they're in, jam them. Rogsai is awesome. Corvold is awesome. All these decks that get to do the broken stuff. It may sound mean at first, but I think, you know, get it when you get to do the broken stuff. It's pretty cool. So try out some of these really broken decks that we have to offer in this format. Yeah, and everybody's working on a similar axis. Even the stacks decks are being broken in their own regard. They're they're affecting the game in such a dramatic fashion. So don't think of it just as if 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 you're that player who likes to basically not have fun and play magic and just basically prevent everybody else from playing magic, go have fun with your stacks list. If you're a turbo head like myself and Matthew, just have at it, jam some cards. You know, that's the best part about this game. You can play it ever which way you'd like to and just design your deck with that in mind. Yeah, thank you so much for listening and watching. I think next week and then and then the coming weeks, we're going to be uh, tackling some of these uh, specific archetypes, really diving into the cards that they play, some of the popular lists and uh, ways that you can utilize them and play against them and just what you might see um, beyond just the staples. Um, thank you so much for checking us out. Subscribe on YouTube if you're over there. Tell us more in the comments uh, what you want to see in the future, uh, what you liked here, what you didn't. And um, yeah. Thank you for checking out Learning CDH. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Again, like you said, like, subscribe, follow us, reach out to us on Twitter, Discord. We're resources here to help the community. Thank you for checking us out and go play CDH.